Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. Today's show is part of the International Leadership Association series. And with me on the show today is Betsy Myers. Betsy was the annual global conference chair for the ILA conference in 2022 and is the author of Take the Lead, Motivate, Inspire, and Bring Out the Best in Yourself and Everyone Around You. Tell our listeners a little bit about what you're thinking about leadership as we go into 2023. My passion for leadership has just been my whole life because I've always been curious about why people do what they do. My father was an executive um, in the aerospace business and had been a test pilot and then at Lockheed Aircraft. And he was head of Skunk Works for a while and moved up to other roles in the company. But he was very passionate about leadership. And my mother went back to school when I was a teenager and finished her degree and got her master's in psychology and taught women's reentry programs at a local community college. And so she was the first one I kind of interested in women's leadership. And so it kind of came from childhood where all my life and career, I had some aspect of leadership or women's leadership. And I found myself in government for a while. I had a job running the Office for Women Business Owners at SBA. Then I went to the White House and I was President Clinton's senior advisor on women's issues and then went to grad school and at Harvard and got my master's there and stayed on ran a leadership center with David Gergen. And that was where I kind of got the academic aspect of leadership and then had a couple other since I worked for President Obama in his first presidential campaign and then ran another leadership center at Bentley University on the advancement of women in business. And then the last seven, eight years, I've had my own business where I've been working inside corporate America on leadership development. But I think my North Star has always been my fascination with leadership and women's advancement. We're at a point in time post-COVID where we've seen women engaging in the workforce dropping off. What are you personally thinking about how we re-engage women as the world of work changes and the support systems change? The pandemic had a big impact on women, and a lot of women found themselves having to quit their jobs. You know, it's hard to have a job when you have toddlers or small children in the house that are also dealing with virtual school and that kind of thing. So it was a very difficult time that we saw. But one of the things that I'm seeing, the positive part of the pandemic on women's lives is that I used to say, what's the number one issue that we need to get our arms around for not only the advancement of women, but also the retention of our workforce and the younger workforce that was coming in, the millennials? And I used to say, you have to figure out flexibility. That is the one area. You can do all the fabulous programs inside an organization, but if I can't manage my life, women make decisions around that, right? What's going on at the family. So the old model of leadership, the baby boomers, that's what we grew up with, right? Which was you just work really hard. You work whatever hours you have to. You miss a vacation or your kid's birthday. The younger generations are like, we're not doing that. So it's not just the struggle with women's advancement that we haven't made the progress that we should have, but it's also these younger generations coming up. That old thing we used to talk about, balancing, that's an old way to describe it. What modern workers today are looking for is the integration of work and home. So the interesting thing about when we talk about women's advancement is that the millennial generation, you know, which is now turning 42 this year, the oldest, right? They came in and said, wait a minute, I want to work in a place where it has purpose, where I feel cared about, where I'm clear about what my job is, and I can run my life. And what's interesting is that they were pushing on this before the pandemic, right? You've seen this over the last decade, but this is exactly what women leaders wanted. So in a way, what the gift of the pandemic 
was that companies realize, wow, we can create flexibility. We can have a hybrid working environment. People can work from home and be productive because that was the feeling, right? Well, if people are working from home, they're really not working. That really threw itself on its head. And the other benefit was, I think, the communities inside organizations got to see each other's lives. You know, the dog barking, the kid running by, the doorbell ringing, what your living room look like, you know? So it was a very interesting time and a very long-winded answer to your question about where we are with women. (laughs) There are several things you said that resonated with me. Coming out of a consulting background, we didn't go in the office anyway very often. We had hotel offices 30 years ago, I think. You know, I'd go in and there's a tote that I'd roll around to an office when I was there, but I was mainly with clients or, right. you know, working from an airport. You know, that was just life. Good. For those of us who grew up in that setting, we never believed that you had to be face to face with someone because we didn't have that luxury. So this idea that people aren't working, it seems ludicrous. And I know we still have people who say that. And there are some people who don't work. And they're also playing solitaire in the office. Right, of course. If you're not going to work, you're not going to work. Right. If you're going to work hard, you're working hard from wherever. Right. I mean, that's one of the things that we saw, you know, we've seen for years, which is women and, and men who have children or family obligations to say, let me leave at three to go get my children. Once they're in bed at seven, I will get back on and do work at night, right? So it's it's allowing people to work in a way that they're able to manage their life. And that's the tricky question is what success looks like so that people know what are they held accountable for and then treat them as adults that they can do their work. Because you certainly don't need to be in the office answering email anymore. We don't have a new normal yet, but what we're seeing is we have a hybrid model for most companies. And that time in the office is not alone on your computer. It's where you have team meetings, collaboration, opportunities to come together for innovation and creativity and relationship building, right? Things are changing, but we aren't quite there yet to be able to analyze exactly how the future is going to look. Well, and it's going to look different for different organizations because there's still a lot of people who go into the office. They find that everyone's sitting in their office on Zoom when they're in a meeting together. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So we need to figure this out. It'll be different by industry. You know, the tech industry is presumably more tech savvy. It's going to have a different norm than a lower tech environment. Right. Plus personality, right? Because some people who are huge extroverts don't do well working from home where other people do. I live with one of those. You're right. Yeah. So, right. I'm a huge extrovert. So I need to be, even though I work out of my home, I need to be around people, uh, you know, because that's what gives me energy. So people have different needs. They have different personality types. They have different job requirements. It's different, right? And as you said, it's also different in each industry, what is required. You know, the other thing we haven't talked about, and probably no one wants to hear this, this was a disruption, not the only disruption. What's the next one? So by the time we get a new normal, something else is going to happen and we're going to be looking for the next new normal. How do we start to adapt to this is the norm for now and two years from now, it's going to be different. What's the one thing we can always count on? Change. And that's pretty much life, though, because nothing ever stays the same for very long, right? And so leadership Leaders have to be able to look into the future and have a vision and be able to tact and make changes in preparation for things that we don't even know are going to happen, right? It's fascinating. And I think that's what makes leadership interesting, actually. 
you know, and then you have new generations coming in, right? Now we have the Zs coming in and they have different parts of them and different interests. But, you know, it's also like when you think about a worker that would come into your organization who then gets married and has children and then has different needs, right? So I was able to work 80 hours, but now I have a toddler or I have a dog at home or I have a spouse that needs me or a mother that's ill. That's life, right? When we think it's all figured out, then something happens, right? And so you're like, oh, my God, I thought I had this all figured out. But I just think that's what life and leadership looks like. Keeps it interesting, right? How did you learn to be adaptable? Because everything you're pointing to is the thing I call the mind of the scientist, that I know with some probability something's going to happen, but I don't know what it's going to be. What I know is I have to have the capacity when the next thing happens to formulate a hypothesis, change my behavior, help my team move forward. And all of that is based on some level of competence, but certainly no level of certainty. Right. I've always been a big risk taker. My sister, Dee Dee, Dee Dee Myers, we talked about this a lot. And there was something about our childhood where there was a safety that we felt, but also the ability to take risks. So it was something that's kind of in both of us, because I think if you have a risk taking mind, kind of what's around the corner, that's pretty exciting. And I don't really have it all figured out, but why not? When I was at Harvard and I loved my job running this, the executive director of the Center for Public Leadership, and then all of a sudden I had this opportunity to go work for Barack Obama in 2007. It was like, wow, am I going to walk away from my really great job that's stable and steady to go work on a campaign that is not stable and steady? But I was like, oh, my God, we had just been studying Barack Obama's leadership at the center. And it was like, oh, I want to go watch this in action. I guess it's maybe a curiosity, you know, risk taking with curiosity. You know, what's next? And I've always had this attitude that as long as it's not life or death, then we pretty much can recover. We look at leadership mindsets and one is innately curious, which I would say aligns with the growth mindset that I'm always learning. And there is a stability, even in uncertainty, when I know I can get through whatever comes up. It may be hard, yeah, but I don't feel like I'm going to die. That's the biggest thing, right? It's like you're not talking that someone's going to die here or you're going to die. It's just like, oh, this is a new adventure. And all my adventures, not everything's turned out right. You know what I mean? Like I've had my fair share of skin, knees and disappointments like everyone else in my personal life and business life. But maybe I've always had kind of a sunny personality where I kind of always think, well, this is interesting and this is going to work out fine. However, it comes out, right? It's going to be fine because we're at Earth School. So we come down here to Earth School and we're on this journey of learning about ourselves, about others, so that we evolve as a human being. If you get too comfortable and everything's the same, then you plateau out. So I always like to take those leaps of faith in different careers and different experiences to say, well, this is interesting. What did I learn? And that makes life a little bit more fun and interesting. I love the idea of Earth School. Uh If the purpose of life is to evolve and grow, not to hit a plateau and reach a title, it completely changes my frame of reference and bumps equal the next opportunity to grow rather than, oh my God, I failed. And failure is an interesting thing, isn't it, Maureen? I mean, a lot of times we, we grow up thinking, oh, my God, failure is really bad, right? But I've always thought, and I teach this in my leadership work, which is failure is data for you about what you were good at, what you need to improve upon. I told the story a few times, but I love it because when I was at Bentley University and I was the founder of the Center for Women in Business, Bentley is in a, a school for accounting, finance, marketing. A young woman came to see me and she was in her sophomore year. She was 19. 
She had just failed an accounting class and she was struggling. And she came to the center and she was beside herself. Oh my God, I, I'm not doing well in these accounting classes. And I stepped back and I said, you know what? Do you want to be an accountant? I mean, do you really want to be an accountant? She said, not really. And I said, well, why are you in this program? Well, my mom is a partner at one of the big accounting firms and she thought this would be a great idea. And I had some interest in numbers. And I said, you know what? It doesn't sound like this is really where your heart is. And she said, it's actually not. And I go, well, this failure that you think is a failure is actually the best news ever. Because at 19, you have figured out that you don't want to be an accountant. And that is beautiful, right? So it's nothing to be upset about. It's like, oh my God, you know what? This is not for me. So that you can be who you're authentically supposed to be. And so failure often points us into the direction of, where we're supposed to be, but it also shows us sometimes where we need to grow up. Mm -hmm. Like it might be a blind spot that you need to look at about yourself, self-knowledge, something, a pattern that you keep recreating or keep persisting to say, wait a minute, I need to deal with this because I keep seeing this in my life, right? So it's all data for our growth. Can you share an example? Because so often people look at someone who's successful and feel like they have magically gotten there. They didn't have the same bumps and skin knees that I have. Okay, I'll give you one example. So when I went to work for the Obama campaign, I was the chief operating officer. And I am not a really a detail person. I'm a big thinker type of person. When you step into the chief operating officer role, that is budgets and data and people and computers and FEC filing and that kind of thing. So what I am good at is not being afraid when I don't know everything and being able to put the right people around me. So that's what I did. And it was really exciting in this new candidate and put this great team together. But with the first year of a campaign like that, you're only dealing with four states, right? So Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. So it's you can manage it, but you're moving to a bigger campaign. Now we're going to go to Super Tuesday in 20 states. And so I was struggling because it was a really long days, all of this kind of numbers and detail and stuff like that. So my heart wasn't singing, you know, and I wrote about this in my book, actually, because I could do the job, but it wasn't really where I was flourishing, you know, because sometimes we can do it. You, you find that a lot where you can actually, well, yeah, I can do the accounting, but my heart's not singing. At the same time, I was getting asked to go out into the country to the different states by the state directors to come speak on Obama's leadership, women in Obama. So I started to go out into the country and go and, and do this speaking. And I came to a crossroads where I couldn't do both. And I was the chair of Women for Obama. I couldn't do both. So I had to choose leadership of the campaign. We decided that I would let go of being COO in 2008. My deputy would step in and I would move out to the country. And, you know, any decision like that, you're, you move away from the center of the decision making and the team to go out to do something different. However, I was never happier. I went out into the country. The state directors would ask me, would you come to Indiana for a week? And then the different young people who were running the different offices would say, can you come here for two days, three days like that? And so I would. And I would go do anything, town halls, office visits, difficult constituents, whatever they needed me to do. And I really saw the campaign from the bottom up. The interesting thing about this was this decision I wouldn't say that I failed at being COO. I'd say it wasn't where my biggest strength was and it wasn't where my heart was. 
this job out in the country was where my heart was. Well, the thing was about it, that when we move towards our authentic self and the thing that brings us energy, I always say, that's how you know, just am I getting energy from this position or this experience or is it draining me? So I had so much energy and I was out there talking about Obama's leadership skills and what we saw in the campaign. And had I only stayed in the office in Chicago and only been the COO, I would only seen the campaign from top down. But being out in the country, the gift of that was that I really saw the campaign from bottom up, which was the impetus for my book and stepping into the speaking world and the world of leadership development and consulting. So that's an example of an area where I stepped away from something that wasn't giving me energy to something that did. And it actually turned out. And I think pretty much that's how my book, Take the Lead, came from those experiences. So I always look at it like stepping into your authenticity, listening to yourself, saying this doesn't feel right. Because sometimes we don't want to listen to that. Our intuition, we stuff down, right? We don't want to hear our intuition. But that interest of where am I best? Where can I step in to be my best self? Where can I contribute the best in this organization by the gifts that I have? And those are questions that I think we have to answer. I love that you, one, listen to your authentic self, even when it meant stepping out of the traditional power structure in this case. Yeah. From the young woman you talked about stepping away from kind of the more certain career of accounting into something potentially very different for her. I think we all come to this on Earth School. <laughs> we all come to Earth School with a package to be opened up, which is our gifts, right? And so we all have these gifts. The saddest part ever is when somebody comes to the end of their life and they say, I never opened my package because I was living a life that someone else wanted me to live. My, my parent or my spouse or society or my lack of belief in myself. Mm -hmm. Because I always say in my women's leadership work, we're all leaders. You know, so many times I say, do you think you're a leader? And people say no. And, and I say, no, at the very least, you're leading your own life. So you're the leader of your life. And that is where we can put the power into our life. Because no matter what happens to you, and every one of us in Earth School and on this planet has had things happen. Loss of relationships, loss of jobs, deaths unkind people, all those things, right? But if we can say, wait, I'm not a victim. I'm going to move past this. I'm going to take the responsibility of my life. I'm going to drive the car of my career. And that is a big piece of my leadership work now with women because a company can do so much for advancement. But at the end of the day, women have to take responsibility for their lives, their career, for their development, for asking for what they want. So that whole concept of like, wow, the leader of me and where in this world can I be and do to be my best self to open the package of my gifts? And the idea of opening the package of your gifts is both male and female, because I work with male clients who are constrained by the shoulds of society. Yes. We have messages from our family of origin. We have messages from society. We have messages from our beliefs about ourselves, right? Because that's part of it, too. We, mm -hmm. we all have beliefs about ourselves, what we can and can't do. We made agreements with ourselves. Something happened, and then we say, oh, that happened to me, so I'm not worthy. I'm not good at that, right? Instead of saying, oh, that's just that experience, that information to inform me. Now, what do I do with that, right? And so you become curious about your own life as well as curious about other people to say, how does that inform me? And now what? I think it's easy to sit in victimhood 
that happened to me. Oh my God, you know, I can't, I won't. And we all struggle with that. I struggle with that too. We all have moments where we're like, I've written a book, but I'm like 10 years later, I'm working on a second book. But I like that voice in my head sometimes. I'm like, well, what else do you have to say? Really? You know what I mean? And then you go, no, what? Stop. We all have that bad girlfriend in the head. No matter how successful someone looks, they're dealing with those. Everyone has it, right? It's just being human. What would you want women listening to this to take away from our conversation? That you're enough, that you're worthy, that you have gifts to put into the world, and you may be doing that, and you may have figured it out, and you may sometimes be into a place where you like plateau, where you think, well, we want more, or other people who just haven't opened their package at all, that it's up to you to be on your life's journey of what makes you happy, what gives you energy, what's your biggest contribution to the planet. And don't give up. Never, never give up. And really important to have community. Surround yourself with people who you can talk to, who are your champions, who can be your truth teller, that can get you out of funks when you get those days where you're like, okay, I feel depressed. I have no energy or I'm about to give up or whatever. You've got to have your posse of people around you, which I've always had. It makes a huge, huge difference in your life to have those people you can call when you're having those days, which we all have, right? Sometimes I think women don't give themselves so much credit for all the advancement that we have done, the contribution to the world, all the successes we are having. You're seeing women in Congress, more women as business owners, more women in the C-suite. You know, we bring this feminine aspect to ourselves. It makes the world better. Listening and collaboration and connection. I mean, that's what the feminine energy. And there's, there's this movement in the world towards this feminine energy. Men and women, you know, what's successful today in leadership is the integration of the head and heart. The head, you know, the thinking, the masculine part of ourselves, the numbers, the data puts the purpose into your organization. But it's the love and care and heart and empathy and vulnerability that we're all talking about now in the leadership field that puts the passion with your followers, right? That puts the passion into your organization. Women, you know, have been leading this way for years. We're starting to see this big shift on the planet and it's super exciting. So never give up. Know that you're enough and know that your gifts are needed on this planet. What do you want men to hear from this? Because this isn't just about what women take away. It's also our advocates and our male colleagues who also need to act with heart, just like we need to act with head. It's not an either or. The integration is crucial for good leadership. Oh, my God. So I do a lot of this work with banks. And so I do work a lot with male leaders. And it's the same for men, which is the old leadership model is a transactional model. And now we're moving to this relational model, which is the head and heart model. For men, it's the same thing, which is to be a successful leader today, because leadership's about getting results. So at the end of the day, right, what gets results? So that old model of do as I say or else is it's no longer effective. It's like really not effective. A lot of men like in the banking professions, accounting, insurance, real estate, they're really good at the head. And so it's like, keep doing that, just add heart. So it's not like we're not asking for a full change of who you are. Add the qualities that get people to follow you. And when people feel cared about and valued and heard and that you are open and vulnerable and then they connect and they're their best selves. So it's the same for men today too, is how you integrate the head and heart. And I have found in my work, Male leaders are are really open to leading differently. It's almost like society is 
for so long has told them, you know, don't feel your feelings, never cry, be a man, right? And it just keeps men from who they really are. It keeps them from being their authentic self, right? Because if you're trying to tamp down or stuff down a whole part of who you are, so this model is really giving men permission to like step into their heart. I have found men love this. For some men, they're saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, perfect. And others are saying, this is more of that touchy-feely crap and I can't do that. Yeah. What do you say to those? Because I don't hear touchy-feely. I hear we all have feelings. We're, we're physiologically wired to have them. And I can own them and act with care for the people who follow me. It doesn't mean I have to run around hugging people or talking about my feelings all day. I don't hear that at all. So can you speak to that? Yes. And you, you basically said it perfectly because the truth is that, you know, everyone in their authentic self has to do it in their own way. Right. So not all men are the same. And so some men are more open and others are less comfortable. But it's doing this in your own way. It's really about how you connect to your people that work with you. It's how you build relationships with the people around you. You do it in your own way, which is connecting with them, talking to them, having a relationship with them, willingness to ask questions about what's going on in their life or when something is going in their life, acknowledging it. It's things like empathy and listening, which is not touchy-feely. It's just humanity. When you look at the greatest leaders of all time, they had the integration of the head and heart, like Nelson Mandela. He's a perfect example of a man that walked in love. When you look at men who we love and who are great leaders, they have this aspect of them. The old model, that Jack Welsh model of slash and burn, is an old, outdated, no longer working model. I absolutely agree. I work with a lot of engineers and technology folks. When they hear... Even something as simple as authentic, they get concerned. Yeah. As I work more closely with them, some of them are the kindest, most caring people in the world. Yes. But you know what male leaders are very interested in is getting results. Yeah. So when you're looking at the issues of retention, engagement, success with the people on your team, this is about getting results. This is a new model that is necessary for the modern worker and the modern workplace. And so it's kind of like where I think a lot of men go, oh, if you have massive lack of retention and massive lack of engagement, and we have this old leadership model here, maybe I need to evolve, right? Because it's, it's evolution for all of us as human beings about what once worked doesn't work anymore. Well, you know, it's Marshall Goldsmith work. What got you here won't get you there. So you got here on a masculine model of leadership or a head model of leadership, but to get here in 2023 and beyond, You've got to add skills that touch on the heart, and that's what keeps people connected and wanting to work in your organization. The quiet quitting and the great resignation and all that is all tied to the younger generation saying, I don't have to work for a jerk anymore. Christine Porath's research, she wrote a book on incivility. Her research showed that the number one issue of a leader's failure today is abrasive and bullying leadership style. One of the things in my work with some of these gentlemen is I'm willing to do it, but I don't know how. Yes. If you learn to be a good engineer, if you learn to be a good technologist, if you learn to be good at your physician, clearly you can learn stuff. It's just a new skill. It is. Right? You're learning emotional intelligence just like you learned 
engineering. Yes. You're taking on a new set of practices. It's not some mysterious thing that I have to, you know, go to a shaman for. (laughs) It's humanity. Kindness. It's just a different application of your ability to learn. Yes. And that's the sessions that I run and teach is all about how do we step into that heart part of our leadership and what does that look like and how do we do it? Because again, you're right. What does that even mean? And it's simple things, right? So it can be just, you know, having a staff meeting and asking your team how you are. It can be walking the floors of your organization and popping in people's doors. It can be remembering people's birthdays and writing a note. It's also stepping back and saying, am I a good listener? Because part of this is self-knowledge. So it's really important as leaders, and I do a whole piece of this in my head and heart leadership work, which is we got to start with self-knowledge because how are you showing up? So a lot of times we don't understand totally how we're showing up, you know, and so I have questionnaires and things for people to ask the people around them. I always say ask people at work and at home and ask things about your listening and your care. So you start there, like, how am I showing up and what's working? And then being able to understand, well, what are we talking about? How do I interact with my employees? Do I talk to them? Do I, do I know anything about their lives? It's humanity. It's human skills of connection is really what it is. And also the willingness to not think you know everything. You know, the old leadership model was, as leader, I have all the answers. But in this new model, leaders can't have all the answers. Leaders are willing to ask the questions to the people on their team who are on the front line. And Mary Barra, the CEO of GEM, is in, is in her whole career was based on this, was not thinking she knew everything and going to the people in every job she had and saying, hey, here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. What do you think? She walks her plants and she talks to the people on the front line and says, what are you seeing that I need to know? You know, so just that alone. So many times we think, wow, our leader has never even asked what I think. I wonder how often leaders just don't want to acknowledge to their people They're just trying to figure it out, too. Yes, because that's the old model. But here's the thing. When you realize that leadership gets results, Mm -hmm. and actually the answers are all with my team, if I just step out of this old way of thinking, because you have to be an evolving leader, and realize, wow, if I spent time asking the folks around me what they think or what they saw, or you really have guts, what are the behaviors I'm doing as your leader that are keeping us from being our best selves? Those are gutsy, gutsy questions. That takes a ton of courage. Yeah. I grew up in a world where, as the leader, you're supposed to know stuff. And when you don't, you're deficient. And getting comfortable with that level of not knowing took a lot of mental gymnastics for me. That also taps into the issue of transparency and vulnerability, because all of these issues that we're talking about are how you connect with people. So My leader is transparent about what they know and what they don't know. And they're willing to ask us, right? And so those are what connect us to you, to the leader, because it's all about connection. Yeah, the other thing I needed to learn how to say was not, I don't know, I don't have any clue, because no one wants to follow a leader who's clueless. But here's what I think is the direction. And I'd like your input so we can build on it. Yes. So finding an appropriate way to say, I have a point of view and I realize it's incomplete because the the thing I would say off the top of my head is, I don't know, what do you think? And that does not instill confidence. <laughs> yeah, you can't say, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't know today. But here's what I know, right? And here's what's going on in the organization. 
and here's whatever our goals are, and here's what I think, and now what do you all think? Over time, you create a culture where people aren't afraid, Mm -hmm. because that's what happens in a do-as-I-say-or-else environment, is then people see things, but they're not going to say anything because they are afraid. So if you can create a organization of transparency, vulnerability, authenticity, and safety, you will bring out the best in the people around you. People won't be afraid to say, oh, I think that's off, or I saw something over here. And it's really, really, really effective. Even in our organization, fairly traditional, I'm just super conscious of how those transactions are happening so that I do create the culture where I don't have to go through the levels. I can just reach out to someone on Teams and say, hey, I need this and have them not be scared of me. Those are gutsy questions. If you think people are afraid of you, you say, are you afraid of me? Is there fear? And where do you see it? And how would you like it to be different? You know, this is about real conversations with people on your team. And that's, again, the connection. When people feel connected, mm-hmm. they feel passionate about the organization. They feel connected and passionate and part of something, right? That's what we're trying to get at here. And it changes everything. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, it's too much in the heart. But the truth is that part of the integration of the head and heart is also being very clear about what people's jobs are, how they're held accountable. So it's not just, oh, all love and care and kindness, that's half the equation. The other part is that people are clear about what their job is and that there's support to accomplish their job. That's a really important point, especially for someone new stepping into this. It probably feels like stepping into the abyss and I'm never going to get there. Or now you want me to spend my whole day wandering around chatting with people, (laughs) not doing the work. And so the point that this is in service of accomplishing results It's not in service of, I just wander around and be friendly with people all day. You know that old, you're only as good as the people around you. So if you want happy, connected, engaged, devoted people, you have to show up differently. Mm -hmm. We all know, we've all had those bad bosses that were unkind, that we were afraid of. Were you your best self? No. You know, you were always like, oh my God, when's the next shoe going to drop? And then here's the other thing about this modern workforce is that people want to bring their whole selves to work. I don't have to hide who I am anymore. So if I have children or I have an illness or I have a dog at home, whatever it is, I don't have to hide who I am or I'm gay or I'm whatever it is. It's like I can be me in the workplace. And so that's the other thing, you know, this whole the diversity, inclusion and belonging that we are working on in companies. The belonging part is that I feel like I belong. And that's how you know that the diversity and inclusion efforts are working. So it's creating an environment where people belong and feel like they're part of something. You know, we just went on vacation. We were in Egypt and Dubai. So we were in Arab countries, predominantly Muslim. It was interesting to be immersed in a different country, different language, different traditions. What are the traditions? How do you stay safe in a country whose beliefs are different than you are? You don't walk around in hot pants and tank tops. I guess one could. It's not respectful. Right. How do you adapt and how am I authentic and respectful? Not I'm going to be authentic so I'm wearing something and I don't care what you think. Right. Right. Well, I think the respectful part, right? And what did you take away from this experience for your own leadership? Just the idea that I had to add the thought layer of, 
how do I dress? How do I behave? How do I speak? How do I show up differently in an environment that is not the water that I swim in? Right. We have employees on our teams, whether they're gay or Muslim or ethnically diverse, that have to make that translation in every single meeting they show up to. Yes. Where can I be my full authentic self and where do I need to put on the different costume because my company or my clients, their norm is different than mine and I have to do that fit in thing. How do we help people belong to your point when they know they feel different? And that's the challenge, right? Is to how do you create in a diverse world, how do you create the feeling of community and belonging and also safety in the organization so people can show up and be their whole selves. Uh -huh. And there was a great research study done by Deloitte a few years ago on uncovering. And it's the kind of inclusion strategy, which is in that research showed that 80% of women of color cover one aspect of themselves, at least one, 70% of white women and 50% of white men. Mm. cover some aspect of themselves, right? And it was really interesting because I was working with this company with the head of the U.S. sales. All the people from each state reported to him. And he said, oh my God, I realized I cover. He said, when I'm going to coach my kid's soccer game, I tell my team that I'm going to a meeting. He says, I'm going to uncover that I am going to my kid's soccer game. So What's really important on this is that leaders have to uncover themselves so that people around them will feel safe to uncover as well. And that's part of the magic is that leaders must uncover. My schedule is transparent to everyone in the organization. So I do yoga in the early evening. It's really the only personal thing on my schedule. Yeah. One of our people said, you should probably mask your schedule. And it was a conversation of exactly what we're talking about. Should I hide what I'm doing? Am I willing to also be transparent that I have to leave a meeting to go to yoga? Absolutely. To your point, I have for a long time said I'm going to a meeting if I'm doing something healthy. Well, you know what? By keeping it on your schedule, you're actually modeling for your team that, A, your personal time matters and that your care of your body and health and physical fitness is important. So you're signaling to your team that that's important to you. So it's OK for them to make that a priority. And they still get messages from me late at night, but it's also OK for them to go to sleep. We all manage our priorities differently. Back to your phrase about integration that I'm integrating my life differently because I don't have young kids. Right. I will make my choices. I expect them to make their choices. And you might also have a conversation. Which it's really interesting about it. i talked to other leaders about who send emails at certain times, right? So late at night, people in the organization think, oh my God, they're up at 11 and I should, before I go to bed, check my email just in case the boss sent me an email or on weekends. And so I've seen companies say, you know what? If you're gonna send an email late at night, hold it to the morning. There's strategies around these kinds of things, but it's really a conversation with your team so that they know if I send you an email at 11, it's because I'm finishing up the day, but you don't need to respond to it till tomorrow. So there, there's clear expectations because we all know that everyone watches the boss, even today, head and heart leadership. People are still watching their, their leader. How are they acting? And then we make assumptions about, oh, okay, they sent me an email at 11. I need to respond to it. And you have the phone by the bed, et cetera, right? So these are just conversations. That's part of the head and heart leadership model, which is let's talk about this stuff. 
am I doing things that you all think you're making an assumption that I expect, mm-hmm. right? And then have this conversation about this is how we're going to have a balanced workplace. Don't we as human beings want to have real conversations with people around us, right? We do. And I actually were on teams a lot at night. And I will occasionally say, like, aren't you going to bed now? <laughs> you know, it's a Friday night. You should be on date night. Just because Mike's working late doesn't mean your wife doesn't want you to be with her. Yeah. Why are you on teams with me right now? And we also have kind of agreements about your health is your biggest priority. So when you need to stop interacting with me, stop. Because I'm going to stop interacting with you when I need to be done with you. <laughs> I mean, when I need... When I need to go to bed, I'm going to go to bed and I'm not going to feel guilty that sleep matters. If we don't have conversations, then we make assumptions about what other people's behavior means. And so why it's so important in organizations and in leadership is to have conversations so that we can bring clarity to what matters and what doesn't matter so that I'm not, you know, it's interesting. I I did work with DuPont for a while. And Ellen Coleman was the CEO. And I was there once when she had a big meeting with their country execs and they were in from all over the world. And I had done some training with them. And she said this exact thing. Remember that everyone is watching your every move as the country leader of your country. And so be careful what you say and how you act. And, you know, and she gave an example where she had mentioned that she loved Maine blueberries. And she said for the next six months, everywhere she went in the world, people were scrambling around to get Maine blueberries in her hotel room. And she said, it was so, I finally had to say, please, you guys, I just said, I like them. You do not need to get me Maine blueberries. But that was a great example of people are watching. How do I make him or her happy? And I'm making assumptions about what they, they want. So the more we can have real deep conversations with the people around us about expectations, culture, behaviors that are inappropriate or are taken in a different way, you know, real heart-to-heart conversations that make a difference and, again, goes back to the connection. Your people feel connected to your organization and to your purpose. I worked in a military organization for a while, and a similar story. General officer walks in, and he said, wouldn't it be nice if we had white rocks in the garden out front? And the story is then people were out like the next day painting the rocks white. Now, why they didn't buy white rocks, I don't know. (laughs) Not only do they watch us, But why didn't someone say, like, that sounds dumb? (laughs) But we didn't have a level of transparency that said, of the limited time we have in a day, painting the rocks in the garden white is not a good use of our resources. How about the safety to go back? If you create an organization that there's safety, then the boss says, wouldn't that be nice that those rocks are painted white? Then someone goes back to him and says, you just made this comment. Were you expecting that to happen or was that just a comment? Because you're not afraid to question assumptions. Yes, questioning assumptions. President Clinton, it was an honor to work for him in the White House. And I will tell you that one of the things I took away from that experience was that the president, he created an environment around him where he thought that his senior people were experts in their area and he treated us that way. And so we weren't afraid to tell him if we something was bothering us or if we disagreed with him or something in the administration. He didn't always agree with us back, but he created a, a zone of safety. And I was a better leader for that because I wasn't afraid to share what I thought. Because you've worked for Bill Clinton and President Obama, what were some of the biggest takeaways you have for what made them exceptional leaders that our listeners could put in practice in their own lives? 
Well, Bill Clinton was the master of this ability to make everyone around him feel that they mattered. The key point of my book and my take on leadership was that leadership creates a feeling. And when people feel valued and included and part of something, they show up as their best and brightest selves. That really was how he lived, how he treated his team. And he would do simple things, you know, like if you had an event with him and you saw him two weeks later, he would actually stop you and say, that event we had was this, that, or the other, and this is what I learned. He took time to say thank you. One time we did an event in the White House, he was very happy about it. And he had vetoed a piece of legislation. I had a big role in this veto ceremony and the people that were there. And I got a message after the event that he wanted to see me. I went into the Oval Office and he stood up and said, thank you for the great job you did. And he handed me a pen that he had used to sign the veto and put it in my hand and said, you know, thank you for the great job. Now, that was a three-minute interaction. And I say to leaders, wherever you are, that was 20 years ago, more, 25 years ago. I still have that pen. I still am telling you this memory 25 years ago because it touched me. And I walked out of his office with more motivation and more excitement to be part of his team. So leaders taking the time to say thank you to your people, to notice when they've done a good job, to see them in the hallway and stop and say hello, that was Bill Clinton. You just felt like, wow, he, he values me. Obama, who he was as a man and his, what he stood for, he, he had integrity, deep integrity, that his words and, and actions, they were the same. Like he, he had great integrity and great passion for what he wanted to accomplish. And his speaking skills as an orator were just amazing, as most presidents are. But I think Obama had an, an unusual ability to connect with people in his, in his speaking. So both of them brought some of the same. They're both so smart and educated and well-read people. So I think that's the other part as leaders is that we have to be curious and interested and willing to keep up on all of, of our areas and both as authors and educated people. I learned a lot from both of them, and it was a privilege to work for them. And both of their leaderships kind of informed my work. I mean, Obama was very authentic. That was the other thing that Obama brought was he was authentic. I am who I am. I like who I am. He was very humble. He was very humble. One of the first times I met him, David Gergen and I had brought a group of students to his office when he was then senator. And he was telling the students about when he lost his first congressional race to Bobby Rush. And he was talking about how Michelle was mad at him. He had no money. His credit card would try to go to the 2000 convention and his credit card got declined. And anyways, he was regaling people. Instead of being like, look, I'm a senator and look what I've accomplished. He was like telling us, like, never give up. And this is all part of the journey. I love that about him, too. Just very authentic and willing to be, this is who I am. We have seven mindsets that we say make exceptional leaders. And one is this professionally humble. Yeah, you're in a senator's office. He's not belittling himself, but he is saying, my journey here was not a simple one. He mixed humility with humor, too. That's one of the other ones we talk about being innately collaborative and inspiring followership is you have to have a sense of humor. Yes. You can't keep life in perspective and put people at ease without humor. Just Obama campaigning recently in Georgia, he was funny. You'd get up there and he was like, I, I was listening to him and I, he made, made me laugh. He always had a great sense of humor. No leader is perfect. I always say leadership's messy. So we bring ourselves into this game of leadership and you know, it's all part of our earth school. Human beings were all flawed and on this journey to be our best selves. It is a journey and it's exciting and part of what life's about.
Betsy, thank you so much. How would our listeners find you if they want to hire you to speak? My website is BetsyMyers.com. Just go on my website and they can put in the contact form. And M-Y-E-R-S is the spelling of Myers. Yes. And I assume also LinkedIn. Yes, LinkedIn is another way to reach me. Great. And we'll have in our show notes also links to your website and to your LinkedIn and other social media if you have it. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you. It was wonderful chatting with you and having, it was a really fun conversation, Maureen. Thank you. And thank you to the International Leadership Association and to Betsy for managing this last conference. Listeners, thank you for joining us and learning. Please like us, follow us, share our interviews. And most importantly, we hope you feel inspired and take that inspiration into what you're doing in the world. 